Well, folks, uh, last week I uh, spoiled you with our family worship cartoon villain quiz. And I want to let you know that I uh, left uh, church on uh, Sunday afternoon feeling rather proud of myself. It's hard to uh, find uh, an illustration or an activity uh, for family worship that engages both, you know, tiny little kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers and young adults and middle-aged people and, and uh, senior citizens and get them all to work together and then not only kind of tie that thing back into the gospel, but it happened last week and uh, I was grateful to, to God for pulling that off. Uh, so if you've uh, come looking for another dose of preaching brilliance uh, this week, I might be disappointing you. Uh, but I'm going to do my, my best. We'll trust that God uh, shows up here. Uh, so this week we're uh, moving back into our uh, just kind of systematic study uh, through the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. We're looking at the lives of all of the descendants of Abraham. And uh, we've entitled it, The Children of Abraham, A Legacy of Faith. And in order to uh, get started, I want to take you back uh, to June 11th, 1964, uh, some 55 uh, years ago. And I want to take you back to a place called Pretoria, South Africa. You see, on that day in this racially segregated country, a black man by the name of Nelson Mandela was sentenced to, to life in prison by the South African government for what was deemed an act of, of sabotage. Now, in reality, uh, what Mandela was really being imprisoned for uh, was his leadership role uh, in a movement that was trying to achieve equality for the majority black community that had been oppressed by the minority white community there in the South African nation. And uh, Mandela would remain in prison for the next 25 years until his release in February of 1990, which came after just the relentless pressure of, of foreign governments uh, pleading with, begging, uh, and in some cases putting economic boycotts against the nation of South Africa to, uh, for them to cease this horrific system of racial segregation that was known as apartheid. And what's amazing uh, about his release is that within the next three years, Nelson Mandela becomes the first uh, democratically elected president of South Africa. He promised that he would only serve one term. He only did serve one term. He was there for five years. And over those five years, he would uh, oversee the, the process of bringing reconciliation and healing to a nation that had been racially divided for over half a century. And... Uh, uh, many of you are, are familiar with Nelson Mandela. Perhaps some of you are familiar with his, his story. Uh, it was captured in a, a movie produced by Clint Eastwood by the name of Invictus. And uh, in Invictus, what it, what it shows is in 1995, uh, the World Cup of Rugby was held in South Africa, and Mandela uh, used that World Cup to help promote uh, this idea of racial unity in his country. And I want to play you a, a clip from that movie Invictus, where one of uh, the head of Mandela's bodyguards, he's a, a black man, 
he finds out that Mandela has ordered that, that his uh, cadre of bodyguards include not only uh, the black men who had been protecting him over the last couple years, but they ultimately bring in uh, the white bodyguards of the former president, the clerk, to be on his security team. And uh, his uh, head of uh, security is highly unimpressed with Mandela here. And I just want to show you this quick clip of that to kind of set the stage for what we're going to study out of the Bible this morning. We need more men. Did you talk to Brenda about it? Yes, yesterday. Ah, that must be Jason with the schedule. Come in, beautiful. What's this? Mr. Jason Chabalala. That's me. Am I under arrest? Captain Fader and team reporting for duty, sir. What duty? With a presidential bodyguard, we've been assigned to this office. Here are our orders. The special branch, right? You'll see that they've been signed. Well, I don't care if they are signed. Just wait here. So you look agitated, Jason. Well, that's because there are four special branch cops in my office. Oh, what did you do? Nothing. Well, they say they are the presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by you. Ah, yes, ah, yes. Well, uh, these men are special trained by SAS. They have lots of experience. They protected the clerk. Yes, sir, but it doesn't mean that they have to come. You asked for more men, didn't you? Yes, sir. I asked... Um... When people see me in public, they see my bodyguards. You represent me directly. The Rainbow Nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir. Yes, reconciliation, Jason. Comrade President, not long ago, these guys tried to kill us. Maybe even these four guys in my office tried and often succeeded. Yes, I know. Forgiveness starts here, too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Please, Jason. Try. Sorry to disturb you, sir. Reconciliation starts here. Forgiveness starts here. Forgiveness liberates the soul, it removes fear, and that is why it is such a powerful weapon. So every one of us, uh, we instinctively know uh, the power of reconciliation and forgiveness, yet at times it seems so incredibly elusive. Over the, the course of our lives, uh, people hurt us, we hurt other people, 
Sometimes it's intentional. Uh, sometimes it's unintentional. But many times and most of the time, it results in severed relationships. Children are alienated from their parents. Marriages are devastated. Siblings are estranged. Uh, co-workers who sit only a, a few cubicles apart are separated by a seemingly endless gulf of emotions and long, deep friendships are left with gaping wounds. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because as soon as you begin to talk about reconciliation, names pop into people's minds. In every one of our minds, right now, as we're sitting here, we're thinking of people for whom we have been alienated. And as much as we say that we don't need that person, or we don't like that person, or we don't agree with that person, or we don't want him or her in our lives, uh, the reality is that broken relationships are horrifically painful, and unless we deal with them, they will haunt us for the balance of our lives. But there's hope for broken relationships. Within the pages of Scripture, God has given us picture after picture after picture of reconciliation. And uh, what we're going to study uh, this morning is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. And what I love about this picture that the Bible paints for us is this, that it's not perfect and it's not painless, but it's real and it's raw and it's reliable. It can actually be trusted. And if we apply these truths that we're going to learn this morning, I believe that God will do some very wonderful, beautiful, freeing, restorative things in our lives. So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. If you don't own a Bible, please take uh, one of them with you. We want you to have God's Word uh, in your hands and in your home. Uh, the nice thing about this particular passage of Genesis 33, if you use one of the Bibles that we provide, it actually is on page 33. I don't know how often that happens, but in this case, it happened. And uh, if you were able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's Word. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And thus he urged him, and Esau took it. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let the Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock, and therefore the name of this place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped there before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El El Shoh Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now what we just read is a very realistic picture of reconciliation. It's hard and messy. It's filled with uncertainty and missteps, yet overflowing with hope. And in the end of this passage that we just read, it doesn't play out the way that we ultimately expected it would. But it does give us an honest view of what is involved in reconciliation. And I have uh, distilled down some of the truths into to three realities of reconciliation. And, and I'll give them to you right up front. The first is this. Reconciliation is risky. The second is reconciliation is healing. And the third is reconciliation is rarely perfect. So let's break this down here this morning. One of the reasons why we are hesitant to engage in the process of reconciliation is because it's risky. We have no idea how the other person is going to respond to, to our overtures of reconciliation. Will they be receptive? Or are they going to be hostile? Uh, will we find healing in the process? Or are we going to ultimately have more hurt than we had before? Are we going to pile hurt upon hurt, basically? You see, reconciliation is risky, and because it is risky, fear is the natural response to potentially re-engaging with individuals to whom we're estranged. And we know that this is true of Jacob, because when we were working our way through chapter 32, we saw that, that Jacob was terrified at the prospect of reconnecting with his brother Esau. Look again at verses 6 and 7 from chapter 32. 
And the messengers returned to Jacob. Jacob had sent out a series of messengers to find out what his brother was up to. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came from your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. See, Jacob has not seen his brother Esau for over two decades. And the last time that he saw Esau, Jacob had to flee because Esau's plan was ultimately to murder Jacob because Jacob had been constantly manipulating him. And so when Jacob learns that Esau is coming to meet him and he has 400 men with him, Jacob is absolutely and utterly terrified. And he's so afraid that he turns to God in prayer. And this is how he prays. He says, oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. You see, everything about this encounter is risky. And because it's risky, Jacob is living his life in fear. Now, fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Many times, our, our fear keeps us from doing stupid things. For instance, uh, because we fear being eaten alive, uh, when we learn that there's a great white shark or a, a, a I was going to say a flock of great white shark. I guess it's not a, a school of great white shark. I don't know what the, what the actual, a tribe of great white shark. When we find out there's a bunch of great white shark that are swimming off the coast of New Jersey and we're heading to the beach for the weekend, we decide that, hey, we'll go to the beach, but there's no way that we're getting into the water because I don't want to die. That is healthy fear. Uh, when we fear getting uh, the lights beaten out of us by a huge guy driving a Ford F-250 who has uh, pulled into the parking space that we were patiently waiting for, we don't engage him because we're afraid of him. And that's probably a really good thing. But other times, our fear causes us to make horrific decisions because we don't trust God. Back in chapter 31, God had said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. In other words, return to where Esau lives, and I will be with you. God had given Jacob his marching orders. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He knew that he was going to encounter his brother Esau, and God had promised him, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to protect you and care for you. That should have been enough to assuage Jacob's fears, but it wasn't. So Jacob begins to do all kinds of foolish things that are driven by fear. Look again at verses one through three of Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with her children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing down on the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So out of fear, Jacob lines up his family in order of their value to him. He puts Leah and Rachel's servant women uh, 
and their children, children that they had born to Jacob in the very front, thinking to himself, if Esau attacks the servant women and their, kills, or their kids are going to be the first ones to die. And then he puts Leah, his first wife, the wife who he was actually deceived into marrying, and the children that he had with Leah, he puts them in the middle. Uh, so if Esau wiped out the, the, the servant ladies and those kids, they, then he could wipe out Leah and her kids. And then Jacob puts Rachel, the wife that he loves, and her son Joseph in the back, hoping that if Esau attacks, that after he kills the servant women and their kids and kills Leah and her kids, that perhaps Rachel and Joseph will be saved. Think about the horrific message that that sends to Jacob's family and the pain that's inflicted upon them. Kids, I love you, but some of you I love a whole lot more. Some of you know exactly how that feels. Because mom and dad had their favorite kid, and you weren't one of them. Does it get any more painful than that? Favoritism is always destructive. But, but ordering his family in, in, in precedence of their value to him wasn't the only foolish thing that he does out of fear. Jacob also minimizes God's plans and purposes. God had declared that, that Esau would serve Jacob. And even though Jacob was the second twin out of the, Rebekah's womb, God had purposed that, that Jacob would be treated like the firstborn. But when Jacob approaches Esau, He's bowing himself to the ground seven times. And a little later, uh, Jacob refers to Esau time and time again as my Lord. Now, it would seem that, that, that Jacob was simply being nice and, and, and being humble. But the reality is he's not being nice and he's not being humble. His actions aren't driven by humility, but rather they're driven by fear and guilt. But Jacob doesn't stop there. He then tries to ensure Esau's favor by buying him off. Look at verses 8 through 11. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? All these people he had sent on ahead, uh, Jacob had sent on ahead. And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dwelt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus Jacob urged him and Esau took it. See, Jacob wasn't trusting that, that God was ultimately going to provide him and protect him. Instead, he's trying to control the situation himself. Now, I know that I, I sound like I'm being uh, tough on Jacob, and the fact of the matter is I am, because Jacob is utterly a mess, and you're going to see this continue out throughout his life. And although he had this wrestling match with God, which Pastor Ben talked about a few weeks ago, and although that wrestling match changed him for the better, his struggle for control and deceit are still very rare, or real. And in the words of commentator Alan Ross, Jacob is truly a comic figure, for he stumbles through his life by his wits 
and yet somehow it seems to work out. And this is how many people operate. And some of us in this room operate in this way. We're driven by fear. Fear causes us not to seek reconciliation. It drives us to make absolutely lousy decisions. It entices us to play favorites. It fools us into trying to be someone who we're, we're really not. It forces us to do everything that we can possibly do to control the situation, and ultimately, it results in us not trusting God's promises. And in the end, fear places us in bondage and keeps us from experiencing the fullness that God has for us. Fortunately, God still works in spite of our fear. And that brings us to the second reality of reconciliation, it's this. Reconciliation is healing. What is amazing about all of this is that Jacob had prayed that God would deliver him from the hand of Esau. And God did that. And God did that long before Esau and Jacob ever encountered one another. See, clearly God has changed Esau's heart. The last time that we saw Esau back in chapters 27 and 28, Esau is planning to murder Jacob. Back then, Esau was a hurting man full of bitterness and unforgiveness and rage. But now, he's crazy different, wildly changed. And we don't know exactly what God did in Esau's heart or, or, or the time period that he actually did it. But whatever God did, it actually worked. In verses four, verse 4, it says this, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. You see, Esau's heart has been utterly and completely changed. And rather than wanting to kill Jacob, now Esau runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, and together they both weep. This is extraordinary. Jacob is doing everything possible to control the situation. Esau throws caution to the wind. He, he just goes and he runs after his brother because he wants to be restored to him. And that, brothers and sisters, that is grace in action. See, a lot of people talk about grace, but very few people actually live out grace. Esau is the victim. He's the one who Jacob has exploited time and time again. He's the one who has been sinned against, yet he's the initiator of the reconciliation. The one who has been wounded is the initiator of the reconciliation. And while fear tries to control and guilt tries to, to uh, buy forgiveness, grace comes along and offers forgiveness long before it's ever requested. You see, Esau had every reason to want revenge, every reason to desire to get his pound of flesh, every reason to be made whole. After all, he's the one who's been exploited and manipulated by his brother. But somewhere along the way, God speaks into Esau's heart, 
removes the bitterness and replaces it with grace and forgiveness. Jacob, on the other hand, he's trying to earn this forgiveness. That's what's happening here. But he couldn't earn it because it's ultimately been given to him. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answers, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. See, Jacob's trying to earn Esau's favor. And Esau's saying, I don't want your stuff. I just want you. That's what I really want. I don't want your stuff. I just simply want you. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the way that we're supposed to live. That's the way that people who claim the name of Jesus Christ are supposed to live. We are people who should, should be filled with forgiveness and kindness and generosity and grace. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells the Christians living in the church, in the community of Colossae. He says this in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will also, uh, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, if your life has been transformed by Jesus Christ, don't be focusing on the things of this world. Focus on the, on the way that things work in heaven. And then Paul goes to, to illustrate the things that, that, that he's calling Christians to do. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Because we're in Christ, because Jesus has forgiven us, because God has changed our hearts, because our names have been written in the book of life, because we are chosen, holy, and beloved. We are to be different. And this is what different looks like. We are to be people who have compassionate hearts, who, who look at others with kindness and grace, and love, that, that we don't look down our nose at other people, that we don't make judgments about them, that we are compassionate, that we can walk in others' shoes. We're called to be people who are kind. Somewhere in the last 30 years, kindness was crucified. Somewhere, somewhere kindness has disappeared. No one's kind to anyone anymore. We hide, hide behind our screen names and our Facebook accounts and our Twitter accounts and our Penn Live accounts, and we spew all kinds of hatred. We are not a kind people anymore. 
We're called to be humble. To consider others better than ourselves. We're called to be meek. The Bible says that Jesus was meek. Do you know what meek means? Meek means great power under great control. Who lives like that? We're called to be patient, realizing that people are in process, that God works with different people in different ways. We're to bear with one another. And if we have a complaint against another, what are we to do? We're we're to forgive each other. And why should we do that? Because God has forgiven us. How dare we not be a forgiving people when Jesus has, has forgiven us, when Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and yet we won't forgive someone else? What, what possibly is wrong with us? And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's who we're supposed to be. And this is how Esau treated Jacob. And that's what brought healing in their lives. Look again at verses 12 to 14. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and we will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. You see, as the excitement of the reunion kind of uh, mellows out a little bit, Esau offers for Jacob to come home with him. He says, brother, come back to my house. Come live with me. You see, clearly healing has occurred. But Jacob doesn't want to, re- or Jacob doesn't just want to, re- or Esau doesn't just want to reconcile with Jacob. He wants him to dwell in the same land that he dwells. Now, it's interesting. Jacob refuses, and he gives the excuse, I have small children and young animals. If we drive them too hard, they may die. Now, what's interesting about this is these animals and small children have just traveled 400 plus miles. And Jacob's like, oh, dude, I got to worry. I got to worry about these kids. I got to worry about these these animals. You know, I, I just, I simply can't go with you. Now, not taking no for an answer, Esau suggests that, that he leaves some of the men behind to help with the small children and the animals. And Jacob refuses this request also. Now, First of all, can you imagine the relief that Jacob must have experienced? He's expecting the worst. And he's actually received the best. Things couldn't have gone any better. Not only doesn't he have to be be afraid of being murdered, his family's been protected. It's amazing. And I'm wondering, has God done some of that in your life? Has God restored a long, broken relationship Were you afraid of of what it was going to be like to to meet your estranged wife or or kid or parent or sibling or friend or co-worker only to be astounded by the beauty of restoration? You're like, wow, I can't believe this. This is not what I expected. 
Have you known the joy of being on the receiving end of grace, deserving rejection and punishment, yet receiving forgiveness and love? And have you experienced maybe the joy of actually giving grace to another person, releasing the hurt, putting off the desire for revenge, willingly opening your heart to be wounded again, and ultimately being amazed by the freedom that comes from offering forgiveness and finding restoration. That's the healing that Esau and Jacob found. And while all of that is wonderful, I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I failed to tell you that reconciliation is not always perfect. You see, as beautiful as all of this appears on the surface, we need to remember that whenever we're in relationship with another person, it's one sinner trying to live in relationship with another sinner. It's the way that it works. Years ago, on April 1st, 1983, Kathy went out on her first date with a sinner. A couple years later, she was proposed to by a sinner. On September 20th, 1986, she married a sinner. Every night she goes to bed with a sinner. And I do the exact same thing. Whenever you're in relationship, it's one sinner in relationship with another sinner. So in other words, as as much as we desire for our relationships to be easy and kind and peaceful, there are always going to be problems. And in this relationship, Jacob is a big problem because he's still not a straight shooter. And his pattern of deception continues. Look again at verse 14. Look where where Jacob makes a promise to Esau. He says, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of their livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. As far as Esau knows, the plan was for him to go back to his home with his men to Seir and that, that Jacob was going to follow him and ultimately come to Seir. But that's not what Jacob has planned. Look at verses 16 and 17. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob returned to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. In other words, he settled down. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. See, not long after Esau starts heading southeast to Seir, Jacob starts heading west to Succoth separated. Whether Esau knew that Jacob was deceiving him or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that even though Jacob had an encounter with God, and even though God had answered Jacob's prayer to protect him from Esau, Jacob was still clinging to his old ways. See, Jacob could have just simply said to Esau, you know what, brother? I don't want to live with you. I I, want to live somewhere else. I love you. This is great. This reconciliation is wonderful. But you know, the two of us cohabitating together is probably not a good idea. 
but instead Jacob relies on deceit. And there are two things that Jacob's decision not to join Esau teaches us. The first is this. Reconciliation doesn't necessarily require joint living. In other words, you and I can be reconciled to someone and still not live under the same roof with them. Let me give you an example. Let's assume that you find yourself in an abusive marriage. Let's assume that, that your spouse is an abuser, that he or she emotionally, and maybe in some cases, physically abuses you. And eventually, after trying everything that you possibly can to save your marriage, you decide you need a divorce. And as most divorces go, it's ugly. Accusations are made and countered. Emails are sent. Text messages are received. Tons of money is spent. Money you can't afford goes to these attorneys who don't necessarily even need it. And in the end, the divorce is finalized and both of you begin the process of living your separate lives content never to deal with the other one ever again. And the years come and go, and unexpectedly, God begins to work in the heart of your abuser. And one day, out of the blue, he or she contacts you and asks to meet with you in order to make things right. And you're scared because reconciliation is scary. But you decide to meet because reconciliation is healing. And apologies are made and forgiveness is extended, but it doesn't go any further than that because reconciliation isn't always perfect. And that's just one of many examples in which reconciliation doesn't necessarily lead to full and absolute restoration. Does God desire reconciliation? Absolutely. Does reconciliation always have to lead to full and utter restoration? No, not necessarily. Sometimes it's simply not safe. Now, the second thing that we learn from Jacob's decision not to join Esau is that when it comes to walking with God, every one of us is in process. Jacob had come a long way from the days when he manipulated Esau out of his birthright and stole his brother's blessing. And during his 20-plus years of being away from his family, Jacob learned much about himself and learned much about God. He learned what it was like to be poor. He'd come from a place of affluence. And during that journey, all the way, that 500 miles up to to his uh, mother's brother, Laban, he knew what it was like to be poor. He knew what it was like to to be deceived because Laban deceived him. He knew what it was like to, to work hard and to hear and follow God. But Jacob wasn't 
perfect. He still battled with fear. He still relied on his own wit and his own wisdom. He struggled with pride. And as a result, Jacob managed to do less than godly things. But God still used him. And that should be an encouragement and a challenge to every one of us who are striving to please Jesus. Now, there's one final thing that I want to share before we wrap up here. And that's this. As much as this is an account about Esau and Jacob, it's really an account about each of us and God. Just like Jacob committed a great offense against Esau, so too have you and I committed great offenses against the holy God. And through our sin, we have destroyed our relationship with our Father in heaven. So much so that the Bible tells us in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That is not something that any one of us wants to admit. But if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we know that it's true. And this helps explain why so many people are hostile to God and to his word and to his people because they know that they have been estranged from God. They know that they've been separated from him. And they're angry and they're afraid and they're hurt and they're fighting back. But in the recesses of their soul were few tread to dead or dread tread they know completely that the separation is their fault and not God's and we know that we don't measure up to God's standard so we do all kinds of things to make ourselves feel good we pretend that, that God doesn't exist, even though deep down we know that he exists. Or, or we, we say that he exists, but we, we deny his holiness and his goodness. Or we ignore his word or, or do our best to, to twist his word into saying things that, that, that we want it to say rather than the things that it actually very clearly says. And we do it all in an effort to somehow make ourselves feel better about our sad state of our spiritual condition. And then the last thing that we do the last thing that we do as God begins to approach us is we turn away. We see him in the distance and he's coming towards us. And we turn away. Because we know that reconciliation is risky. But then, God like Esau, he comes running towards us hands outstretched, a smile on his face, tears running down his cheeks. We have no idea what to do. And, 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 and 
rather than running from him, he's coming right at us, and we know that, 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 that we can't stop him. And so what do we do? We bow down in fear, and, and we, we try to somehow buy him off. To, to convince him that, that, that we've done these good things and, and, and to, to make him be what we feel is less angry with us. But he'll have none of us because he doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants us. That's what he wants. And this is exactly what Colossians tells us. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has reconciled himself to us, so much so that our, our former alienation is gone. No longer does sin separate us from the holiness of God. We are now holy and blameless and without reproach. That's the work that Jesus Christ ha has done on the cross. This book that we hold in our hands, this is not a book that, that, that teaches us how we can be made right with God. This is a book that teaches us how Jesus has made us right with God. That's what's in here. All of these rules and, and regulations and statutes, they're in there to remind us we can't do this. It's impossible. We try. We go through life saying, I, I want to be a good person so I can be in heaven. This book was designed to show us that we're not good people. But it's also designed to show us something else. There was one good person. One person who did everything that this says. Didn't mess up at all. Fulfilled every one of God's rules fully satisfying the Father. And then, on top of that, after doing all of that, he says, you know what? I'm going to take the penalty that all of the people who don't do this stuff deserve. And he goes to a cross and he dies in our place but he doesn't stop there. Not only does he die and pay a debt that you and I could never, ever pay, but he raises again to life so that we might have eternal life with God the Father in heaven. That's what happened. That's what reconciliation looks like. Jesus, the one who has been abused, is the one who comes seeking us out. That, brothers and sisters, is Christianity. No other faith system on the face of the planet or in all history can ever touch that. None. 
And there are many in this room who've come to understand that. Praise God for that. But there are many in this room who've not yet come to understand that. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I, I, I don't like the whole altar call thing. We're not going to do that. But I'm here to tell you right now, you can't please God on your own. It's an impossibility. No matter how hard you try, if you stand before God without Jesus, he will look at you and say, I don't even know who you are. And so I encourage you today to consider the things that you have heard out of God's word. And the way that we come to Christ is through repentance and faith. That's what Jesus tells us in the beginning of Mark. That we come to God the Father and say, God, I am completely and utterly messed up. And that's nothing new to you, Father. You already know it. So does everybody around me. They know it. And I confess to you that I am sinful and there is no way that I can make it to you on my own. And so in faith, I come before you, Father. And I place my trust in Jesus. I receive him into my life. And I will strive the best that I can do to follow him all the days of my life. That's what makes you a Christian. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Being a good person doesn't make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Repentance and faith and the quietness of your heart before the loving God of the universe, that's what makes you a Christian. If you've yet to do that, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. Let me pray for you. Lord God, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray, uh, Father, for those in this room who have yet to come to faith in you. I pray, God, that you would uh, do the work that only you can do and begin that process of gently drawing them to yourself. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that at this moment, in this day, that there would be some in this room that would pray that prayer and whose lives would be forever changed. And Lord, I pray also for those who are in estranged relationships right now. Lord God, you care so much uh, about relationship. You tell us that uh, if we've come and, and we're getting ready to lay our offering down and we remember that, that someone has an offense against us, that we're, we're to leave our offering behind and go and find that person. I pray, Heavenly Father, uh, for those in this room who have estranged relationships, that, that today would be the beginning of that journey. I pray that you would give them strength and courage because reconciliation is risky. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give them passion and hope because reconciliation does bring healing. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would realize that the reconciliation that they seek isn't always going to be perfect, but it will be good because you're in the midst of it. And it's through your Son's name we pray. All God's people said, amen.